My name is Lyris of Skyrim, called Titanborn by some. I am committing these words to paper on behalf of my friend and ally, a man history will only remember as the prophet. It was through his profound insight and his study of the Elder Scrolls that we came to understand the dire nature of the threat that now endangers all of Damriel. Let it be known by those who read these words that the soul burst, the event that took place in the 579th year of the Second Era, was due to the treachery of a single elf, the Altmeri necromancer Manamarco, the King of Worms and the servant of the most vile of all the Daedric princes, the god of schemes and lord of brutality, Olag Baal. In the years past, Manamarco served as chief advisor to the court of Emperor Varen Aquilarius, originally a duke of Coral. Varen became emperor of Tamriel by right of conquest, with Manamarco's council, Varen led a revolt against the previous dynasty, the savage regime of Reachmen known as the Longhouse Emperors. Yet, despite his conquest and victory, Varen was not to be a true emperor. Like the former emperor Leovic, the blood of the dragon didn't flow through Varen's veins. He was unable to light the dragon fires in the Temple of the One, as a true emperor must by tradition. The dragon fires have remained unlit for generations. This is because the Amulet of Kings, a relic of the divines gifted unto Saint Alessia by Akatosh, was lost in the centuries following the fall of the Raymond dynasty. Only this relic, traditionally worn by Imperial Emperors of the First Era, would allow a true-blooded ruler to spark the Dragonfires anew. At Manamarco's urging, Varen formed a group of companions to join him on an epic quest to locate this relic. These companions included myself, the Red Guard Swordmaster Sai Sahan, Grand Chancellor Abner Thorn and Manamarco himself. For years we scoured the face of Tamriel, following countless leads until we finally managed to locate it. When we returned to the Imperial City, Manamarco played upon Varen's insecurities and convinced him that the coronation ritual properly modified, could not only light the dragonfires, but persuade Akatosh to invest him with divine agency and gift him with the blood of the dragon. It was only after the coronation ritual was attempted that we learned the extent of Manamarco's deception. The King of Worms used his magic to corrupt the power of the amulet 
causing the calamity which came to be known as the Soul Burst. I remember very little of the actual event, only that the chaos that followed was immediate and devastating. Varen was consumed by the fiery wrath of the Soul Burst. Sai Sahan and I were unjustly implicated in his death, made all the more suspicious because Sai fled as soon as he recovered, taking the Amulet of Kings with him. Grand Chancellor Tharn was an opportunist, and immediately cast his lot with Manamarco. The Prophet's story is one of mystery. He appeared one day on the steps of an abbey of the Moth Priests in Cyrodiil. They took him in and fed him, thinking he was nothing more than a vagabond. They were shocked when they found him in the libraries that night, poring over the eldritch etchings of an Elder Scroll. Only the Moth Priests themselves had the ability to read the scrolls, and they saw his arrival as a prophetic sign from the Divines. As they do all who read them, the Elder Scrolls eventually took the Prophet's eyesight, leaving him permanently blind. And yet he continued to study them in his mind's eye, and eventually foresaw the great and terrible threat that we are now faced with. Words of his prophecy spread far and wide, eventually reaching the Imperial City and the ears of Manamarco. The King of Worms immediately arrested the prophet for rumor-mongering and treason, and had the abbey and all of its contents burned to the ground. The catastrophe that the prophet predicted began to take shape almost immediately. Vast swaths of the empire were consumed by Daedric fire, and the first dark anchors fell upon the lands. Molag Ball's invasion of our world had begun, made possible by Manamarco's betrayal. The prophet's visions and nightmares are getting worse. He continues to witness horrifying visions of a future in which Molag Ball rules our world. These don't seem to have a profound effect on him when he is awake. But at night, in those precious few hours where he manages to drift off, the visions become increasingly disturbing. He refuses to describe them to me in great detail but he awakens violently in a cold sweat, and it's obvious that they are wearing away at his sanity. Our ally has already proven extremely capable. The escape from the Wailing Prison was only the beginning. The Vestige risked everything to rescue me from the Foundry of Woe. I owe our new friend my life, my soul, and perhaps my very sanity. We're now chasing every available lead in our attempts to find Sai Sahan and the Amulet of Kings. If we can regain the amulet 
The Prophet believes that we may be able to challenge Molag Ball and save our world. As usual, he used a bunch of flowery words and obscure phrases I didn't understand. But his general meaning was clear. Sometimes I wish I'd never left Skyrim and gone to Cyrodiil. I fought for a great man that I believed in. Met another that I came to cherish dearly. And had my share of blood and glory. But was it all worth it? Cyrodiil will always be the place where I first laid eyes on that traitorous skeever Manamarco. And his sniveling toady Abner Tharn. I don't know which is worse. Anamarco's charm and eloquence as he prepared to backstab us. Or Tharn's endless insults and irritating condescension. At least with Tharn, we always knew where he stood. The prophet said that Tharn's part in this isn't finished. I can't imagine any good coming of that. After all, that sniveling son of a goat went right back to licking Manamarco's boots after the soul burst. He'd do anything to save his own hide and preserve his family's status in the Imperial City. I must bring this entry to a close. I hear the prophet stirring. Well, there it is. Thorn's back with us, and I don't like it one bit. The Vestige and I managed to get into Manamarco's castle, with a little help from our soul-shriven friend, Sir Cadwell. Cadwell's like a wisp, a little light in the upper marsh, if you get my meaning. But he can be damned useful at times. And he shows up in the damnedest places. While we risked our necks fighting through worm cultists and flesh atronex, Barn projected his smirking image to different parts of the castle, goading us on. We eventually got to the tower where he was being held, but Manamarco was ready for us and raised all manner of undead to challenge us. In the end, we defeated them and escaped with Thorn. But here's the topper. Thorn lied to us. He has no idea where Sai is being held or where the Amulet of Kings is hidden. Of course he claims he can help us find both, but when he admitted his lie, I lost my temper and laid him out on the floor with a single punch. Gods, it felt good. That was a long time coming. That's when Thorn spilled the beans. He told that we had been lying and revealed the Prophet's true identity. Lord Varen immediately admitted everything, of course. I hope it wasn't too soon. It's vital that we maintain trust. And now I can see doubt behind the Vestige's eyes. Thorn is such a lying skeever. All he cares about is his empire and his family's status. Lord Varen believes Thorn's here for a reason, but I don't trust him, and I never will. I plan to keep a close eye on him. I am Grand Chancellor Abner Thorn. 
overlord of Nibane, the head of the Elder Council, advisor to emperors and kings for 117 of the 164 years that I have been alive. I did not come by my position of influence through luck or nepotism, but rather through extreme discipline, ambition, and cunning. And yet, here I am, conspiring with idiots and fools in a musty hole in the ground. How the mighty have fallen. The year is 2E582, but I am unsure of the precise date. I've lost track, given the gravity of the monumental task that is before us. After reading the previous entries in this chronicle, I felt it necessary to offer my side of the story, so that I am not misrepresented by future historians. We Thorns have held positions of power throughout Cyrodiil since the days of the Potney. We are prized for our loyalty to the Empire, our deft political machinations, and our ruthless subjugation or elimination of dissenters within Imperial territories. What we do is grim work, but it is necessary if the Empire is to endure. Do I sound boastful and egotistical? Perhaps I am, but I shall put these words to paper so that you, the reader, might understand my views and my actions and their place in the long view of history. For nearly thirty years I advised the savage men of the Reach. From Durkarach to Leovich, as their long, brutish dynasty ravaged the Empire. They lasted longer than many of the would-be conquerors that came before them, but their alien nature and low heritage made them unfit to stand in the presence of the true-blooded sons of Colovia or Nibane. Their most grave insult came when Leovic, youngest of their line, sought the hand of my sixteenth daughter Clivia in marriage, that she might rule with him as empress. Like his grandfather before him, who married Veraxia Tharn, Leovic hoped that our family's connection and pure Nebanese bloodline would somehow legitimize his claim to the ruby throne. It was an exercise in futility, and it exasperated me to no end. So when Varen Aquilarios, the son of a Colovian duke and a powerful military leader in his own right, contacted me in secret and sought my assistance to depose these foul strangers from the north, I eagerly agreed. The war was long and bloody, but armed with my knowledge of the Imperial City, Varen eventually led his armies of rebels to the palace gates. Baron drove his sword into Leovic's black-blooded heart and watched him die, choking on his own lifeblood at the foot of the ruby throne, and immediately declared himself to be emperor. For my loyalty and assistance, he agreed to take my daughter Clivia as his bride. After Varen's betrayal at Minamarco's hand, 
It pained me to hand the reins of the Empire over to another Outlander. The King of Worms is a dangerous enemy. To ensure the dominance of necromancy over all forms of magic, Mana Marco immediately cast the Mage's Guild out of the Imperial City, then had all remaining dissenters arrested as enemies of the state. I did not wish for my name to appear on that very long list, which only grew shorter when the executions began, so I pledged my loyalty. In return, I was granted stewardship of the Imperial City. My daughter Clivia, still the Empress Regent, became the titular ruler of the Empire, but Manamarca remained the power behind the throne. Of course, Manamarco turned on me the moment my usefulness was expended. I was marginalized and cloistered away in the Tower of Bones, and my daughter was turned against me, lured by Manamarco's promise to teach her the dark arts that would give her mastery over life and death. But know this, dear reader. I will take the Empire back. I will restore order out of chaos. That is my only ambition and my ultimate desire. I will strike down any who stand in my way with all the fires of Daedric sorcery I can command, and those who dare to thwart me shall be damned to the pits of oblivion for all eternity. Collecting the Red Guard from the Halls of Torment was a simple enough task, in the end. I find it curious that Saisahan was affected so by his experiences with the other members of the Companions, though I find his tolerance of, and affection for, that hulking she-troll distasteful. It cannot be denied that his willpower throughout his imprisonment was nothing short of legendary. We now know where the Amulet of Kings resides. It is perhaps fitting that he returned it there. Sahan is better read than I expected, but a perhaps a bit too poetic. A clever and patriotic man of imperial descent might have immediately thought of the ancient citadel of Sankar Tor, and its association with Lesia and the Covenant of the Divines. It is perhaps a great blessing that the elven Manamarco has no such love for Cyrodiilic history. Zai Sahan is a curious individual. I have never considered the Red Guards quite as contemptible as many Nibbanese lords might, and I find him the most agreeable of the surviving companions. He understands duty and dedication serves those he knows to be his betters, and hones his craft with singular dedication. Despite his inability to resurrect a lost tradition, or the best probably, given its supposed implications in the destruction of the Redguard homeland, Saisahan's abilities with a longsword are awe-inspiring. I recall a time during the war against the Longhouse Emperors, when he rode at the head of a column of mercenary soldiers tasked by Varen to assist in the liberation of Leowen. It turned out that Leovic 
scion of Tog Dryalith and the Emperor of the Imperial City employed those mercenaries as double agents. When Sai came before the gates of Leowen with his loyal troops, they turned on him, hoping to deliver the severed head of Varen's legendary Dragon Guard commander to Emperor Leovic. Second-hand accounts of the citizens are often difficult to trust, but even if one takes simple peasant exaggeration to account, it is clear that Sai fought his way through two forces intent on separating his skull from his neck. When he returned to the rebellion base at Bruma weeks later, he did so with the scalps of 86 men and the news that Leowen had been freed. He's never really spoken of it to me, despite my pressuring. Baron, of course, did not pry. He used his own charisma and the overactive imaginations of the levies to spin a tale of glorious combat. One man against two armies. Sai Sahan, who single-handedly freed Leowen from Leovic's control. The truth, I suspect, is far more brutal and bloody. One does not saw the skin off of 86 skulls unless one is burdened with a great deal of suppressed anger and bloodlust. One man does not take on 600 at once. I think it far more likely that the Red Guard fought a brutal, running battle through the city for days, murdering commanders and guardsmen alike, until the Reachmen and their mercenaries eventually quit the settlement. That is what makes Sai Sahan so dangerous. He does not look to be the sort who would remain hidden away in dark alleys and back streets, surviving by eating garbage, butchering one by one, men so savage that the only way to frighten them is to become a murderous invisible ghost, haunting the shadows of an occupied city. And yet, that is precisely who he is and what he has done. I am called Sai Sahan, son of Nazir Itaf Sahan, of Bankurai. I have been asked to add my words to these chronicles, and though I am no scribe, I will do my best. The teachings of Devad, of Abba, of Kalam, and the Sadame tell us that while a warrior may hone his craft to perfection, or sharpen his sword to where it may cleave stone and steel as though it were air, the true worth of a swordsman is denoted by the quality of the enemies he draws to him. I find myself idly wondering if the great forebears would reconsider this philosophy if they could see us now, and witness our enemy, the Prince of Daedra known as Molag Baal. At first, I thought to write that my training did not prepare me for this, but after hours of meditation and the counsel of my once emperor, I have come to realize that this is exactly why Kasura and I trained and studied for so many years. The sword singers of old Yakuda were said to be more than mortal, possessed of focus and skill far beyond what other men might achieve in a dozen lifetimes. 
while I cannot claim to have reached such greatness, perhaps my final test was not to wage wars alongside emperors, but to bring righteous steel to bear against the foes of all life. I harbor some doubts about whether I am ready for the coming struggle. I did not break under the tortures of the betrayer, but I did not emerge from the halls of the torment unscathed. Torn flesh knits under the menstruations of my lord's healing magic, and my savage dreams are soothed by Snow Lily's warm voice in my ear as I startle awake in the dead of night. But still, I am not whole. Barn and I speak at length over games of skill and strategy while I recover. And I have spoken plainly about my worries. His contempt at my perceived weakness serves as a much needed counterpoint to Snow Lily's tender words. I endure and accept it. For a warrior without humility is as flawed as a sword blade forged too rigidly. His words harden my resolve and keep my wit sharp. It is difficult to set aside the many deaths at the Abbey of Blades, and though we did what we could in the wake of the attack, it will be many years before Kasura is ready to train more students in the way of the blade and the mind. When all of this is ended, should we survive, of course, I would very much like to return there and help rebuild. Perhaps I will ask Snow Lily to come with me. It pains me to see a city of such history corrupted by the foul necromancy of Panamarco and his black worms. Though the sons and daughters of Cyrodiil are not my people, it is precisely the ruination of something so deeply, culturally significant that causes my heart to ache. In many ways, though neither crown nor forebear will admit it, we are more alike to the Imperials than we are different. Varen honored me when he asked me to be captain of his dragon guard. I trained many of the captains myself, drilling them in the arts of swordplay, leadership, and tactics. They were of many races and many creeds. There was devout Nethanol of Morrowind, who would quietly recite the sermons of his heathen demigods each dawn. I also recall young Lucas of Ain, outcast from his family holdings in High Rock over some political squabble. Not all of us were imperial, and yet we took readily to their traditions, their learned ways, and even their food. We believed in the visions of the Empire once. This day, it seems the Empire was just a dream, and the Sancrator merely a ruined shadow of that dream. I swore an oath to Varen Aquilarios to protect him and see his own dream of a reunited Empire come to pass. But as we now witness, and I must admit, it will be impossible to fulfill that oath. 
Even now, the Imperial City is besieged by those who would see their own petty leaders seated upon the ruby throne, and very few of them are of its native soil. I mourn the loss of Sancrator and the broken empire to the ravages of conflicts both cosmic and mundane. Not because I hold any special love for Imperial ways, but because it is much like the fate of the sword singers, a broken line that only a scant few seek to mend for reasons that are unselfish or incorruptible. Abner Tharn once again. If I had had a drake for every petty king or would-be emperor that wanted to get their filthy mittens on the Amulet of Kings, I could purchase Akavir right out from under the scaly feet of those detestable snake people. The Amulet's loss after the fall of the Raymond Dynasty, and the dawning of the Second Era, centuries before my birth, was considered the greatest catastrophe of its time. Without a duly ordained emperor sitting on the ruby throne, many prophesied the doom of the world. But like many of the prognostications from provincial soothsayers, their predictions did not come to pass. Not yet. Without the Amulet of Kings, Tamriel endured just as it did when the divinely chosen wore it around their necks. The sun rose. People killed each other over greed and petty ambitions. Powerful men dictated the fates of those beneath their stations, and they all woke up the next day to do it all again. I'm not hopeful about our chances against the Daedric Prince. It is the most ridiculous of follies to believe that. Even if the spell works, one might actually challenge such a powerful entity and emerge victorious. The Vestige is a formidable warrior, but still flawed. In truth, I'd rather send Titanborn on this fool's errand and save the Vestige for when we are better prepared. She, at least, is expendable. I realize just how foolish such a sentiment is. And Titanborn, if you are reading this, try not to twist your ridiculous pigtails into a knot. I am a thorn. Humility does not suit us. There can be no doubt. Our one chance is here and now. We take it or perish forever. Much of Tamriel has been spared the horrors of this engagement, and already the land recovers from the impact of the anchors in the places where they fell. Common peasantry would accept this as providence and laud the efforts of those who ended the Daedric melding of worlds. But their ignorance is bliss. My knowledge of the Daedra affords me a terrible glimpse into the nightmare world that awaits us, should we not wholly dislodge Molag Baal's grasp on this world. Consider, dear reader, Tamriel is a ripe apple, dangling precariously from the flowering branches of a great tree. For eons it is hung far above, well out of the reach of the hungry teeth, the Daedra who would feast upon it. 
but the rending of a cosmic veil caused by the soul burst. Manamarco's tainted coronation ritual cracked the branch on which our aforementioned apple grows. Picture, then, as we continue our quaint agricultural metaphors, Molag Ball as the hog who grasps the nearest leaves of the stricken branch. His dung-stained trotters give him leverage as he pulls, hoping to tear the entire branch down so that he may feast upon the apple. The efforts of those who stopped the plane meld and shattered Molag Ball's anchors staggered the footing of the hog, sweeping his legs out from beneath him. Nevertheless, his fetid teeth still dig into the branch. If he is allowed to recover, he will begin his struggle yet again. We must dislodge Molag Ball's teeth, as it were, through application of incredible force. Of course, we cannot use the amulet a second time in the same fashion as we did at the Soul Burst. But if I am correct, and I always am, a modification of the spell will allow a mortal to become a vessel of the divines and imbue him with the power of the amulet. The particulars of the magic itself could fill a book in and of itself. So I shall spare the reader the specifics, which are undoubtedly above the understanding of even learned scholars. It takes the formidable intellect of a thorn, and there are none alive greater than I, to comprehend its complexities. If we succeed, history shall record that it was the knowledge and ambition of Abner Thorn that brought about the salvation of this world by guiding the hand of the vestige. If we fail, then none will be the wiser, for we shall all become the lifeless, mindless servants of the Daedric Prince until the end of time. And yea, verily, did the five stride forth to the shadows of calamity to render unto Molag Ball the right solid thrashing he deserved. I can say with pride that I, Sir Cadwell of Codswallop, the undaunted knight of the court of Cold Harbor, champion of chivalry, defender of the defenseless, shepherd to the soul-shriven, have watched from a great distance to see this moment come to pass. I shall miss the beautiful vistas of Cold Harbor with its seas of crystal blue flame, a sky of perfect smoky darkness, and its rocky peaks stretching high into the ashen clouds. Tamriel is but a weak simulacrum of its perfection, which I find downright bothersome, given that this lot all things cold harbor is but a shadow of it in return. Can you imagine it? My good friend has done an excellent job, though. I find their name coarse and unpleasant to pronounce. Still, far be it from me to judge. They have laid the god of schemes low and found a new mistress for me to serve. Ah, radiant Meridia. Her eyes of shining gold fill me with inspiration. It is her I shall now serve. For what is a knight without a lady love to protect? 
she was rather adamant that I bring her light to the vestige, so that they can use it to traverse the length and breadth of Tamriel. I dare say there was a hint of fear in her voice as she spoke of the days to come, as though the destruction of Tamriel under the clawed, palisade talon of Molag Bell was somehow not the worst of it. It is, of course, not my place to pry details from her that she is not already willing to share. A simple no, punctuated, naturally, with the typical booming voice and flashing magic of Daedric Wrath, convinced me that it was a poor idea to press the matter further. Lovely and radiant, but not kind or gentle. The Daedra... Even the most benign of them are all like a hurricane off the coast. It is a dark sort of beauty, but you pray it does not come onto land and crash the ball. What? The harborage will do for a home for now. Venturing outside is difficult for me. I dare say Tamriel has gotten uglier in the years since I have been separated from it. Meridia's warm light keeps my spirits soothed evermore. 